We don't need police in schools. Let me unpack and explain it. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The the, the Breakdown. The the, the Breakdown. The, 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 The Breakdown. You already know this, but police target people of color, black people in particular, because of bias, both implicit and explicit. It's racism. It's white supremacy. And it's so deeply embedded in this country that it fuels and undergirds almost everything. Now, white people can be brutalized by police from time to time. We've seen it. But black people have legitimate and automatic reasons to distrust the police. Breonna Taylor, who was an essential worker, was shot and killed in her home in the middle of the night. George Floyd was, in essence, brutalized from for something he should have possibly gotten a ticket for and was killed over it. The young, beautiful soul, Elijah McClain, was walking home from the grocery store and murdered by police. Ahmaud Aubrey was hunted as he jogged, only to have police and prosecutors attempt to cover up his murder. Now, police view African-Americans through the lens of law enforcement. They've been taught to look for any infraction, any opportunity to proactively enforce the law against black folk. Biased expectations, listen to me, biased expectations leads to confirmation bias and ultimately it leads to a huge disparity in results. In fact, in all 50 states, less than 14% of the jail and prison population is black. But the U.S. Bureau of Justice Stats notes that 33% of the prison population is black, more than twice the representation of the population. And as usual, Florida is a special case where the census states that just 17% of all people in Florida are black, but 300% more than the representation of the population, 47% of all men and women in state prisons in Florida are black, when only 17% of the population is so. And even under the coronavirus pandemic, amidst all of these calls to decarcerate for the vulnerable people that are in jail and prison, people at high risk of dying of the coronavirus and low risk of reoffending, the disparity still persists. For example, more than half of Illinois' prisoners are black, but far fewer than half of those released because the coronavirus have been black. So in other words, black folk are disproportionate in Illinois' jails and prisons but are less than representation than that representation on who's been released because of the coronavirus. And right now, listen to me, our taxpayer dollars 
go toward an unjust system, one that's failing a huge part of the American population. And because of their biases, police criminalize black and brown and indigenous communities and everyday people we're talking about who are just trying to live their lives. They're just trying to sleep, just trying to buy cigarettes, just trying to go jogging. And that's bad enough. But what's worse is when we begin putting these agents of discrimination in America's schools. Listen to me. Since school shootings became an omnipresent specter in the public consciousness, it's been easier and easier to justify, or should we say rationalize, putting law enforcement in schools, in some elementary schools. Have you seen the videos of American police brutalizing five, six, seven, eight-year-old black boys and girls, sometimes arresting them, handcuffing them? In elementary school, in middle school, in high school, I've seen kids literally knocked out by American police, boys and girls. And the cost, the financial cost, have been astronomical. And that funding runs well into the hundreds of millions of dollars nationwide. And what do schools get? What do we get in return? Let me break it down. Break it down. Not a single school shooting, not one, has been thwarted or stopped by a police officer assigned to that school. Not one. In fact, in one instance, the assigned officer fled and tried to get first responders to flee with him. So if they're not protecting our children, if they haven't actually stopped a single school shooting, what are these officers doing? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're supplanting normal educational discipline mechanisms. They're traumatizing and criminalizing students of color and black students in particular, as young as five and six years old, even handcuffing them for minor behavioral problems in the school. I don't know how old you are. I'm 40 years old. I feel 68 years old, but I'm 40. And when I was in school, if you had a behavior problem, the idea that they would send the officer the police for your behavioral issue to send the police in to brutalize and handcuff and arrest you and take you to jail. It's just ridiculous. In schools all over the country, police officers are doing more harm than good, especially for black and brown and indigenous students. They're even giving departments and their Benefactors, even rather, even if you give departments and their benefactors the benefit of the doubt, what they're doing is counterproductive. Here's why. Early exposure to discipline-ready police officers destroys any potential trust in law enforcement. Studies have shown it. 
Worse, with police on site, minors are being sent into the juvenile justice system, and in some cases, children are being sent directly from America's schools into adult jails and prisons. Not suspended from school, not sent to detention. They're being sent to jail. They are being given criminal records for behavioral issues in schools. And let me be clear, this is something that's happening in a wildly disproportionate rate to black and brown and indigenous students and all over the country right now. And I am so proud from Charlottesville to Chicago, from Madison to Seattle and Oakland, teachers and school boards are calling for an end to police in schools. And some cities, including Minneapolis and Denver, have already passed it. It is done. They're the ones who see both school resource officers, they're just police officers in school, and students from day to day. And they know that without question that that cash, that that funding would uniformly be better spent on counselors, nurses, and mental health providers for students. And here's the deal. Listen to me. Police officers in school are just one of the earliest and most obvious parts of the pipeline complex driving black and brown and indigenous children, and black children in particular, into the criminal legal and justice system, driving them directly into prison. The school-to-prison pipeline is real, and it's still there. Listen, I, I, I understand the value of voting. Vote. Yeah, I want you to vote. But this school-to-prison pipeline was built by Democrats and Republicans, and electing a Democrat alone does not destroy this pipeline. We've known how necessary it is to dismantle this pipeline. And the public has finally started to understand the root causes of the school-to-prison pipeline. In this massive undertaking, it begins by defunding the police and redirecting excessive budgets to alternatives to policing that actually work. We don't need them in our schools. Use that for after-school programs. Use that for job readiness and training programs. Use that for school counselors. I had School counselors from Los Angeles reach out to me yesterday and say that all over Los Angeles, they are they're canceling counseling programs for schools in budget cuts. And I'm like, oh, hell no. Now schools don't have counselors, but have police. It's time to not only defund, but to bench the police in favor of what we know works. And thanks to the horrible work of police unions who have fought for police to get more and more work in more and more places, their role in society has spread everywhere. Officers are fueled by excessive funding and they're emboldened to undertake shocking 
in violative approaches to community policies by using federal grants. And they're also using uh, use it or lose it military grants, using military equipment. We see it all over the country. They've brought these attitudes and approaches not just into investigations, but into emergencies, treating our communities as virtual war zones. And here's the thing. This police first model of dealing with community crises is a thing of the past, or it soon will be. It needs to be. Let's talk for a moment about how to forge a vision, an imaginative vision of public safety that includes freedom and safety for all. And what do we do with what we know about how to redirect these funds to non-law enforcement first responders and community-based, community-led solutions? Here's the thing. Non-law enforcement first responders are a common sense first step. They exist in some places like the organization Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, and the system works. That's why seven of 10 likely voters say they want programs like Cahoots where they are. And Cahoots is a non-threatening, non-law enforcement response to problems in society. That's why the same number, nearly 70% of people, want the right professional, not police, to respond when they call 911 for a family member experiencing a mental health crisis. When someone is having a mental health crisis, don't send the police. Almost as many people, 65% to be specific, don't want police to be the first answer to a drug overdose. Send nurses, doctors, social workers, and experts, but don't send police with guns and badges. Don't. Most crises are best addressed not by gun-toting police officers seeking to use force. And that's what law enforcement means. Instead, people want those that are trained for the task to show up. Nurses and other medical professionals, social workers and so on, subject experts, not police. And we know that providing support to leaders in communities that are experiencing violence who want to stop the violence, we know that that's effective. Not to mention a hell of a lot more cost-effective than blanketing areas with police who aren't even familiar, who don't even know the people living in those communities, don't even know its members or the dynamics or the cultural, uh, the cultural undertones of the community. The people within the community who have the knowledge and the power to stop cycles of violence, need to be the ones leading the solutions. Consider programs like Cure Violence and other violence interruption strategies that are based in and led by the community. They've been in use all over the country. Right now in Richmond, California, for more than a decade, they've been having violence interruption programs that work, plain and simple. That's why right now, Just as we record, Baltimore is starting to use the same tactics to address violent trends there. Police don't reverse the violence. They don't. They say don't bring a knife to a gunfight. It's time we say 
Stop bringing a gun where there's no fight. Police can join efforts to reform the public safety system, or they can take their chances facing a public that's increasingly critical of their shortcomings. Listen to me. And the reforms and shifts and the changes that we're fighting for need to be deep, serious, and systemic. This system doesn't need to be tweaked. It doesn't need a little adjustment here or there. It needs a massive overhaul or it's going to continue to fail and at huge cost. Take care, everybody. Hey, my name is Brandon Janice and I'm the host of Sick Empire, a brand new podcast brought to you by the North Star. On Sick Empire, I interview New Yorkers who in different ways, fight on the front lines for change in the city during the coronavirus pandemic. Please listen to hear a unique mix of stories from essential workers, small business owners, artists, and elected officials who are all experiencing the chaos of COVID in their own ways. Listen to Sick Empire on all streaming platforms. And you can support the show and any of our other podcasts by heading over to thenorthstar.com and becoming a member. Sick Empire.